Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. With that said, we are in week two uh, of our two-week series on generosity. And uh, last week I made a mistake uh, that I need to offer a public apology for. And I just feel like whenever you make a mistake, you know, you just need to humble yourself and say you're sorry and people can move on. So uh, last week uh, I made the mistake of uh, simply suggesting that maybe we overdo fall decorations. Just a suggestion. I don't know, the solar-powered sunflowers, the corduroy pillow covers, the decorative towels. Maybe, just maybe, we've gone a little too far, America. I don't know. Now, I guess that's worse than kicking a puppy on stage during a sermon because the pumpkin spice mafia came after you, boy, this week. I just want you to know. After the 9 a.m. service was over, I wasn't even done preaching. I still had two more reps, Clifton and the 11 o'clock. After the 9 a.m., my wife texted me and she said, hey, you remember those velvet fabric pumpkins, the number one thing on the list? This is what she sent me. She said, we got them. Shortly after that, my mother-in-law texted me. She said, you remember the boho table runner? Got him. Over the course of the rest of the day, I was consistently harassed by this church. One man wrote, hey, bro, my wife was hoping to get the rest of that top 20 list. We already got the top five. Another lady called me a hater. Another lady said, why would you tell people to burn a false cinnamon candle when they could just buy essential oils from me, dear Lord? (laughs) Now, I could go on, but I want you to know that this is what it looks like to be persecuted for Christ. (laughs) And for anyone in the room who was concerned, I want you to know that I will not back down from the Real Housewives of East Louisville. I will stand up, I will speak out, they can't catch me in their Uggs anyways. (laughs) Stephanie. All right. Now, with that being said, will you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Um. Uh, Today we're going to read a passage that many of you read before. It's from Mark chapter 10. It's the story of the the rich young ruler. And you may be familiar with his story, but what we tend to do is we tend to overlook the conversations that happen after the story where Jesus really gives texture to the whole experience between him and the rich young ruler. So I'm going to read the story, but I want you to pay attention to their conversations afterwards. Starting in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 34. It says, as Jesus was uh, starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down, and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. 
But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not cheat anyone. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Then looking at the man, uh, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There is still one thing you haven't done. Don't you love that? It says Jesus loved him, and so he speaks the truth for, to him here. He says, There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them. But Jesus said it again, Dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved? They asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, Humanly speaking, it is impossible but not with God. Everything is possible with God. Then Peter began to speak up. We've given up everything to follow you, he said. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the sake of the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. But many who are the greatest now will be least important then, and those who seem least important now will be the greatest then. They were now on the way up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were filled with awe, and the people following behind were overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. Now, Today, to close our generosity series, uh, I want to talk about one of the major obstacles to generosity in our cultural moment. Uh, it's what I would call, you've heard of this before, the prosperity gospel mindset. Prosperity gospel mindset. Simple definition for you. Prosperity gospel thinks, if I do good things, especially when it comes to giving money, and God will reward me with health and with wealth. We might call this the quid pro quo God. Because if I scratch your back, you scratch mine, God. You owe me. That's the mindset. But I'll go ahead and tell you the prosperity gospel mindset is so dangerous because it makes generosity possible. Literally impossible. Because if you give from a prosperity gospel heart, you're not actually giving to God. You're not actually giving to the church. You're not actually giving to the poor. You're giving to 
yourself. Now, one of the leading historians on the prosperity movement is a lady named uh, Kate Bowler. She's a historian at Duke, wrote a book about the prosperity movement in America uh, called Blessed. Blessed. You can find it later. Uh, But in in the book, great book, she basically sums up uh, prosperity theology in America today in two categories. She said there's hard prosperity and there's soft prosperity. Hard prosperity and soft prosperity. Hard prosperity is the stuff that most of us roll our eyes at. It's the tele-evangelist stuff. If you'll give $100 today, God will pour out $1,000 on you. You know what I'm talking about? It's, it's the stuff we see and we just think, who's, who's buying that? Like, I remember during COVID, I saw on Instagram this clip of a preacher who was selling COVID prayer hankies. For, for $15.99, we'll send you a prayer hanky and you'll be, whatever, vaccinated by the blood. Okay. I'll tell you, the most damnable part of the prosperity gospel, uh, gospel is, that it, uh, is that it preys on the poor and the sick. It accuses and abuses the suffering. It accuses them because it says the reason why you're sick is because you don't have enough faith. And then it abuses them because it takes the little money that they have and puts it in the pocket of bad actors. Hmm. About 60 years ago, the prosperity gospel killed my great-grandma. She was constantly battling high blood pressure. One night she attended a tent revival where there was a televangelist there, faith healer. And he prayed over her and anointed her with her oil. And she, he, he told her, he said, you can go throw away your blood pressure medicine. You've been healed. And being a woman of faith, she did. And then a few days later, her blood pressure shot through the roof. Imagine that. She suffered a major stroke. It paralyzed her, and eventually it killed her. Hard prosperity is evil. Now, fortunately today, hard prosperity has become more of a fringe movement. Uh, But Bowler's second category hits a little closer to home. Her second category is what she calls soft prosperity, soft prosperity. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you that there is a little bit of this in every heart in this room, at least a little. So soft prosperity is that unspoken expectation we all have inside of ourselves that if I do good things, especially when it comes to my money, God will reward me. He'll give me a little kickback. He'll reward me with health. He'll reward me with wealth. It's in our churches. It's in our pulpits. It's kind of hard to spot actually because preachers of soft prosperity use scripture usually good communicators. It's super therapeutic. It sounds self-helpy. It focuses on the techniques that you can do in order to make your life better, but it is devoid of Jesus. It's like the Bible's a self-help book. It's a a secret book for you to maximize your life and health and wealth, and it totally forgets that Jesus' call is to come and die. Now, if you want to do a checkup on how much soft prosperity has your heart and where, I've built a little checkup list, four questions. And I want to walk you through these. I would just encourage you, write these down and and take them to your prayer time this week. Just so you can see where where this false teaching is getting grips on your heart. Here's four questions. Uh, One, uh, what role does God play? Two, how do I understand and respond to suffering? Three, what do you pray for? Like, what, what, if, what is in my prayer life? And for what's my first instinct when I get paid to raise my standard of living or my, my standard of giving? Let's start with the first one. What, what role does God play? 
Seriously, what role does he play in your life? Is he God? Or, uh, or is he a puppet that you can kind of pull the strings on? Can you manipulate God to do stuff for you? Is he Lord, a, sort of a, a genie in a lamp that you can rub on whenever hard times comes along and he can give you what you need, help you out? What role does he play? I've been guilty of this. The easy to pick on example in my life was, was back when I, when I was in college. I played baseball. And I remember uh, when it would get to the season time, especially when we get into conference play and those games were really, really important. I wanted to do good. So what did I do? I started praying more. I would read my Bible more often. I'd clean my life up of all those little college boy sins that, that we just need to put in a closet until the fall, right? Uh, I, would, I would write Bible verses on my wrist tape, wear a cross around my neck, lead the team prayer before the game, all because I thought that if I was a really, really, really good follower of Jesus and I did all these really religious things, then somehow God would reward me with a three for four day, maybe a double, a few RBIs. And you laugh, but it's in all of us. I still do it to this day. My son plays baseball and he'll go to the plate and I'll be like, God, I gave my life to ministry. Give my son a base hit. Soft pro your kids will bring soft prosperity out of you. They will. This is what soft prosperity does. I demote God, and in so doing, I deny his sovereignty, his control, which is heresy. He's not in control. I am. I'm the center of the universe. He's like the cosmic butler, so go and make me happy. That's question number one. What role does he play in your life? Question number two. How do you understand and respond to suffering? Now, for what it's worth, when people are going through suffering and grief, I have a, I have a whole lot of grace because those emotions run hot and raw. Never judge somebody by who they are when they're grieving. But that said, uh, when we do face suffering, what's your first instinct? Because for many of us, it's to blame God. So look at him and be resentful. God, how could you? I don't deserve this. Do you hear the language there? I don't deserve this. Uh, today, we are so suffering averse in our culture that when people are just asked by God to suffer, not even forced to suffer, just asked by God to suffer, they push back. Wait, following Jesus means I have to live below my means? When it comes to my money, wait, Jesus makes claims on my politics. He makes claims on my time. He makes claims on my body and sexuality. Wait, Jesus makes claims on my friendships and relationships. And my, Jesus makes claims on it all. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. I can't serve a God like that. Just this past week, I listened to a gentleman struggle. He was legitimately struggling. He's a leading intellectual uh, in his field and he was just struggling with the reality that following Jesus was going to cost him social currency. It was going to cost him the respect of some of his peers. They might shun him if they knew what he believed or if he truly followed Jesus. And he couldn't comprehend why God wouldn't just let him believe whatever he wanted to believe. He wasn't willing to pay the cost at the end of the day. So how do you respond to suffering or even the invitation to sacrifice for God? That'll show you how much soft prosperity you got in there. Third question, what do you pray for? How, how do you pray? Think right now about what your top two or three things are consistently in your prayer list. Is it health? Is 
it wealth? Is it blessing, success at work, God protect my kids, give us safety, whatever it may be? Here's the thing, none of that's bad. And I'm sure all of us pray for that. Nothing wrong. Ask God for that over and over again, please. But if your prayer life only revolves around your needs and there is not adoration, repentance, confession, thanksgiving, it's just an endless stream of requests upwards. Well, it's an indicator of what you think God is for. Which brings me to my fourth question, my last one. When you get paid or when you get that raise, what's your first instinct? This will show what you think about your money. This will show whether or not you got soft prosperity in your heart. What's your first instinct? Is it to raise my standard of living or to raise my standard of giving? Because you see, if you think in your mind that it's all God's anyways and you're just a steward and this, this thing that you got here is a gracious gift of his, then you'll be eager to at least give some of it back, to offer it up to him and say, God, what do you want me to do with this? It's yours, right? It's just a transfusion of money that you've given to me, but it's, it's your, I'm just managing it for you, right? Or on the flip side though, if you're soft prosperity and you think I earned this with my hard work, and with my good life, then you'll spend it on yourself. So what's that first knee-jerk instinct? Standard of living or standard of giving? It'll, it'll reveal some stuff to you about yourself. Now, one, two, three, four, you see the, the questions there on the screen. This is soft prosperity. And I would suggest to you, again, it's in all of us. Don't push back. Just let's, let's try to root it out. Let's try to look within today. Okay, don't, which, which question hits you? That, that'd be my question. Not if, but which. Because we need to root it out. Because soft prosperity is ac it's absolutely toxic for generosity. It makes it impossible. So if you give out of a motivation to get back, then that's not actually being generous with others. It's being generous with yourself. Now, that's why I love this passage from Mark on Jesus and the rich young ruler. Because here we see Jesus address the prosperity gospel mindset, and he actually helps us escape it. Let's go back to the passage here. We're going to see Mark 10, uh, 14 through 37, uh, or excuse me, uh, 17 through 34. We'll see three things here for those of you who are note takers. This is your outline. First, we're going to see Jesus upend the, our prosperity gospel. He's going to flip that idea I just talked about on its head. Second, we're going to see Jesus establish his own prosperity gospel. Did you know that Jesus was a prosperity preacher? Oh, he actually is, just not how you think. And third, we're going to see Jesus tell us how to get his prosperity gospel. And he's pretty clear on that as well. You ready for this? One, two, and three. Let's start with the first one. Jesus upends our prosperity gospel. He upends it. Okay, so a quick summary on the rich young ruler. Again, many of us have heard this in church before. The rich young ruler seems like a real nice guy. He does. When he greets Jesus, he's like kneeling. He's very respectful. Typical East End Christian. You know, keeps the commands. Well-respected. Got, got money. The outside's buttoned up. But on the inside, mm, on the inside where only Jesus sees, he's got a heart problem. So Jesus loves him. Jesus loves him. And he, and he tries to cure his heart problem by offering him an invitation. Leave your stuff behind and follow me. The invitation of a lifetime, right? But the rich young ruler can't do it, so he walks away sad. And in that moment, Jesus turns to his disciples 
and he upends conventional thinking about God and prosperity. Watch what he do here, 10.23. says, after the rich young ruler went away sad, Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. This amazed them, or the Greek word there is surprised them. They're like, <gasps> but Jesus said again, dear children, it is very hard to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And once again, the disciples were astounded. Greek word there is terribly shocked <gasps> again. And they respond astounded. They say, then who in the world can be saved? Total shock and confusion. Uh, so R.T. France uh, wrote a wonderful commentary on the gospel of Mark. Uh, he's a late Irish scholar, Oxford uh, guy. Um, and he suggests that what makes this so shocking to the disciples was that they had a, we might call it a medium prosperity mindset, that rich equals blessed. If you had wealth, then you were especially blessed by God. You had earned it. You had done good. You had done righteousness in some way, shape, or form, and God had blessed your family. But Jesus won't stand for that, will he? Instead, what does Jesus say? Well, rich, he says, he says rich doesn't always mean blessed. In fact, what rich always means is, is spiritual vulnerability. It's a threat, he says. How hard it is for the rich. I love how he plays the crowd, by the way. You see how he plays the crowd? Like, he drops this controversial statement. Hey, it's hard for the rich to get in the kingdom of God. And the disciples are, <gasps> and it's almost like he sees their reaction. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll double down. Camel, needle, super hard. <gasps> and they, it's just, it's mind-blowing to them. But you can see their confusion. In John 9, it's interesting, we see the other side of the coin. If they believe that rich equals blessed, then the other side of the coin is they believe that poor equals punished. And Jesus attacks that. John chapter 9, it says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. You remember this story? Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his sins or his parents' sin? Do you see it? There it is. Jesus corrects them, though. He says, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. Now, the disciples' assumption is that this man's suffering is a punishment from God. But Jesus upends this thinking. He says, suffering does not always mean punishment. Rather, suffering always means spiritual opportunity. He got opportunity to take his story and turn it into glory. For God. This is the upside down way of Jesus. And it is upside down. Rich equals spiritual vulnerability. Suffering equals spiritual opportunity. This is reality. And isn't it reality? Prosperity gospel ain't Jesus. Just call it like it is. Let's not sign his name on it any longer because he doesn't you know, in my opinion, I believe uh, taking the Lord's name in vain is so much more than just like saying, oh, oh my God, you know, what did your mom teach you when you were, you're like, don't use God's name recklessly, right? That's, you don't take the Lord's name in vain. And you shouldn't do that, by the way, you shouldn't. But I believe that taking the Lord's name in vain 
goes far beyond that. It's when we put God's name on promises that he never co-signed to keep. And this is one of them. This is one of them. So some of us need to hold up. This is what we need to be teaching our youth today. The youths love the youths. We need to be teaching them that rich equals spiritual vulnerability and suffering equals spiritual opportunity, not the prosperity gospel. Because, see, I believe that one of the main reasons young people deconstruct their faith as they grow older is because we've sold them the prosperity gospel. And it doesn't hold weight. At least not the weight of life when it starts coming at you. We all suffer eventually. Don't we? Just be good. Work hard. Do your best. And, and God will bless you. You'll achieve your dreams. It's like a Christianized version of the American dream. But sin has made life much more complicated than that, hasn't it? I would suggest to you that suffering is more certain than prosperity is in this life. So look, I'll keep it real with the youths if no one else will. Life's hard for even the most religious, do-gooding, church-going, love-the-villing, hard-working people. It's hard. Eventually, we all figure that out, and that's what makes soft prosperity such a false, destructive teaching. Because what happens when it doesn't work? What happens when you get injured and miss your senior season? What happens when a pandemic comes or a recession comes and, and it throws your school or your job just upside down? What happens when you can't get pregnant? What happens when you're not CEO by 27? What happens when you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor? What happens when you can't pay the bills? What happens when your friends betray you? What happens when it's your dad who's the one who gets in the accident? What happens when, I don't know, you just fail? Or what happens when you succeed, everything you hope for, and you're still empty? Or what happens when you just get to the end of your life and you're like, that was kind of, I don't know, meh, average, unknown. What happens when your body starts to age? What happens when grief wraps its cold fingers around your throat? What happens when pain becomes a part of your daily reality? You see, uh, what proves your faith isn't the good things you can get God to do. What proves your faith is what you do with those good things when he gives them and how you face down suffering when it comes. And it comes. You've heard me say this. I don't think that suffering uh, builds your character in the moment. It builds your character over time. It builds your character in retrospect as you time, have time to heal and process through it the power of the Holy Spirit. But in the moment, suffering doesn't build your character. It reveals your character. It reveals it. And you'll face suffering. And Jesus says it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for your story to give God glory. It can be a defining moment in your life if you want it to be. Rich equals spiritual vulnerability. Suffering equals spiritual opportunity. Where do you find yourself today? Meet the moment with Jesus. He upends the prosperity gospel, doesn't he? Turns it on its head. That brings us to our second point. After Jesus upends the prosperity gospel, second, Jesus establishes his own prosperity gospel. Did you see it? Jesus is actually a prosperity preacher. Who would have known? It's just not like you think. Let me explain that before I get fired. All right. Mark, Mark 10, 28. 
It says, uh, then Peter began to speak up. Peter, I don't know if he sees an opportunity here to get a pat on the back or what, but the rich young ruler walks away, doesn't give nothing. So Peter's like, we've given up everything, Jesus, to follow you. And Jesus said, yes. And I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the sake of the good news will receive now a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. Many who are the greatest now will be least then. Those who seem least now will be greatest then. Okay. So we got us some prosperity promises here, don't we? Let's name it and claim it today. Take inventory. One, prosperity promise one. He says you will receive a hundred times now. What you give is in there, right? You saw it. Did you see it? Is it just my Bible? No, I saw it. It's there, right? It's in there. Second, he says, you will receive persecution. Oops. I think he slid that one in as everybody was cheering after number one. You will receive a hundred times more. <sighs> and persecution. Wait, what, wait, what, what? And you'll get eternal life, number three, right? Because <sighs> that's, those are the promises. And they're, they're for the most part, encouraging promises. So the first one's amazing. Jesus says, anyone who sacrifices for me and the gospel will receive 100x in this life. Now, in this life. Now, how is that possible? Well, this is debated by scholars and theologians, but I will give you my opinion. I believe it's possible through the church. It's possible through the newfound relational and social wealth you have when you enter into the family of God. You've been adopted into a quite big family, after all. We got more than 100 houses in this room, I'll tell you that much. And this family is supposed to have you, right? We got you. This is, that's the beauty of our unity. You get the sisters, you get the brothers, you get the mothers and spiritual fathers that you never had. You get the multicultural perspective that you never had, the wise accountability that you never had, the loving care and the last 10% speaking friends that you never had. You get a financial safety net. You get an army of strong backs to bear any burden that life throws at you a hundred times indeed and some. We fam, right? Mi casa, su casa. Which technically means your fridge is my fridge, so I'll see you later for dinner. You know, I was thinking about this on the way back. I was like, uh, what a beautiful phrase. Uh, the reason why we always say that in Spanish is because the Latino culture is so exceptional at hospitality. And I thought, like, white folks, what do we got? Get off the lawn? I mean, we got to do better. We got to do better. By the way, this is why in the New Testament, it is such a sinful travesty when the church lets its own suffer. I'll read you just one passage. There's many. 1 John 3, 17, it says, If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, a brother or sister, right? Talking about the family of God. If you see somebody in need, you got the money, you don't help them. In the family, how can God's love even be in that person? John says, Oof. 
So we're supposed to be there for each other. And I'll go ahead and tell you, we will need each other because what was promise number two? Persecution. Persecution. Can you imagine a prosperity preacher selling that one, by the way? <laughs> Instead of a prayer cloth, selling a persecution cloth? For $17.99, we'll send you persecution in the mail today. <laughs> but we know this. We know this. You and I know that when you radically follow Jesus with reckless abandon, it puts you at odds with the world. But don't worry. Your church fam is with you. And prosperity promise number three, eternal life is your future. What a beautiful promise that is. So this isn't just a prosperity gospel Jesus gives us. It's an eternal prosperity gospel which in my humble opinion is far better than what we have before us. Okay, so to recap, Jesus does actually preach a prosperity gospel. It's just different. He promises persecution, but he also promises a 100x return now, and he promises eternal life in the age to come. Pretty nice. So how do we get it? Well, third, Jesus tells us how to get the prosperity gospel. Don't miss the condition of the reward. Don't miss it. 1029. Jesus says, everyone who has given up these things, house, brothers, sister, mother, father, children, or property, for my sake and for the good news, the word for there just means because. So because of me or because of the gospel, the euangelion, the good news, those are the people. Those are the people who get the promises. Hmm. Now I would tell you the most significant thing about this verse right here is not how much you give up. The most significant thing is what motivates your generosity and your sacrifice. And he says, Jesus says, the motivation must be Jesus. It must be the gospel. Or in other words, Jesus says, Jesus is why. For the godly giver. And when Jesus spoke to the disciples, I don't think they understood fully the gospel yet. We know they didn't understand fully the gospel yet. They had all sorts of, you know, different ideas, and Jesus tries to correct them. They thought the good news was that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans, restore Israel to its former glory. It was like this militaristic, messianic dream where Jesus puts the bullies in their place. But that's not, that was not Jesus' vision, so he corrects that. Mark 10, 32. Do you see how he corrects it? They're still on the way to Jerusalem. So they're on the way to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking ahead of them. The disciples are filled with all the people following behind, overwhelmed with fear. Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus once more began to describe everything that was about to happen to him. Listen, he said. We're going to go to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law, and they will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. And that's the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the historical reality that should motivate our giving, animate our living. Is this your why? But one great preacher tells probably one of the best illustrations I've ever heard for this. 
Uh, he said, uh, imagine, if you will, a, a land a long, long time ago, far, far away. And there's a poor gardener there who loves his king. Because he loved his king so much, this poor gardener one day went out to the garden and he picked a carrot, his very best carrot, his biggest carrot. And he walked proudly into the king's court. He bowed before him and presented the carrot to the king. My beloved king, he said, this is my very best carrot. I know it isn't very big. I know it isn't very much. You probably could have a thousand carrots just like this, but it's the best I got, and I wanted to give it to you because I love you. You're a good king. Well, the king discerned the gardener's heart. And he said, thank you, dear gardener, and accepted his gift. And dear gardener, he said, do you know that large field next to your small garden? I own it. And I want you to have it because I know you will take care of it. Go and be blessed. Now, while this whole thing transpires between the gardener and the king, uh, the story goes that a wealthy nobleman was in the court. And he overheard the conversation and he thought to himself, well, <laughs> if that gardener can get that for a carrot, imagine what I can get. So the next day he came back with his best horse. He said, dear king, this is my best horse. It's the fastest, most beautiful, most best stallion in all the land, king. And I want you to have it. And the king discerned his heart. And the king said to him, thank you. And then he took it. <laughs> and the wealthy nobleman stood there with his jaw open, completely baffled. And the king said, oh, you're confused. He said, well, you know the difference is between you and the gardener? The king said, the gardener gave the carrot to me. But you tried to give the horse to yourself. And this is the difference. This is the difference between Jesus' prosperity gospel and ours. Are you the grateful gardener or are you the greedy nobleman? Because only one of them is truly generous and only one of them will be rich in the end. Do you give to get? Or do you give out of gratitude for what has been given by Jesus in the gospel? Because God knows Jesus has given us so much. God chose to forgive us. And Jesus paid the cost. You do realize that forgiveness costs. Period. On a cosmic scale for our sins, on an everyday scale for you. So, so sometimes it, it's easier if you bring it to like a, an economic level in our everyday lives. Let's say you're having a party at your house for uh, the you know, opening weekend for football, right? And one of your friends there, they have one too many. They knock a picture frame off the wall. Your favorite picture, and it lands on the floor and shatters everywhere. In that moment, a wrong has been done. And you have two choices, two options, right? Number one, you can make them pay for it. And it would only be fair. They committed a wrong to you. Or two, you could forgive them. But if you forgive them, it's not like you just snap your fingers and the wrong goes away. Someone still has to pay. And you know who pays? You. You pay. Either you go out and buy the new frame or you suffer, without, you suffer emotionally without that beautiful picture on your wall. But, but either way, forgiveness costs. This is true in the everyday happenings of your life. This is true in the cosmic happenings of our soul. 
God chose to forgive. Jesus paid the cost, and it was a heavy one. Jesus saved us from the dark side of the prosperity formula, the punishment formula. We had done a wrong against God. We are the cosmic criminal. We deserve a cosmic punishment. And as we are standing there before the judge in the courtroom and the sentence is about to drop on us, Jesus, the innocent one, makes a way for forgiveness. And he stands and says, I'll pay. I'll pay the debt. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, one of my favorite passages. The Apostle Paul says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, eternally, endlessly rich, y'all, he was rich. Yet for your sakes he became poor. So that by his poverty he could make you rich. Do you see it? There's there's a transfer in bank accounts here. Look at the beauty of Jesus' life. Look at the brilliance of Jesus' teachings. This man was built different. Jesus had such an endless treasury of righteousness He could afford to pay the eternal debt we owed. 100% God, 100% man, an eternal life for our eternal debt. His righteousness is so super abundant that not only does he pay for our past sins, but he fills our treasure chest for all eternity. And if this is true, if this is true, how could you not be the grateful gardener? How could you come before that sort of king with manipulation in your heart? So uh, can I make a suggestion to you today? It's one I've made many times before. It's one I made last week. I believe that appreciation and gratitude for what we have in Christ is the key to generosity. Do you appreciate it? The reason why we don't give more, the reason why we are so protective of the things that we have is because we don't appreciate what we already have in Christ. Did you know I could drain your savings account today and you would still have all you need in Christ? Do you know I could burn your house down and we could downsize you three sizes and you would still have all you need in Christ? Do you know I could take your luxury car? Do you know I could take your smartphone? (gasps) No. If I forget my smartphone, Tyler, I'll show up 15 minutes late to church. We'll turn around and go home, right? And go back. Okay, but I promise you, I promise, even without your smartphone, you have all you need in Christ. Do you know I could... I can move you from this safe country and plant you in the middle of a war zone. You could raise your children there. And even then, you would still have all you need in Christ. It's the riches of what he's given us. Can I just remind you once again of what you have in Christ according to the scriptures? This is Bible here. You have freedom, innocence, grace upon grace, redemption, and the righteousness of God in Christ. You have a heavenly father, a selfless son, a holy spirit, and an adopted family praise God, in Christ. You have no condemnation, new birth, new life, new creation, new clothes, new mind, new heart, new nature, and a new covenant in Christ. You have been chosen, saved, accepted, and adopted in Christ. You have been consecrated, liberated, initiated, supplied, anointed, purified, sanctified, and justified in Christ. You have been given love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. In Christ, you have been given wisdom, knowledge, courage, power, authority, and a spirit not of fear and timidity, but of love in Christ. You have been given the mission of God, the meaning of life, and the mystery of the gospel in Christ. 
You've been made alive, made new, made steadfast, made one and made grateful in Christ. The veil has been lifted and torn. The distance has been narrowed. The ransom has been paid, praise God. The trespasses have been canceled. The chains have been broken. And the battle has been won in Christ. You have been given victory, triumph, hope, a future, and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm in Christ. You have been promised consummation, vindication, resurrection, commendation, celebration, and perfection in Christ. And you have an identity because of it. You have a story. You have eternal value and worth. You have the image of God stamped upon you. You have a realistic assessment of your evil, but you also have a way out and a way up in Christ. And this is the eternal prosperity gospel of Jesus. And it's received through gratitude. Gratitude for the gospel. And I'll tell you this, with all those riches available to us, you know what I think? I think the real scandal of our false prosperity gospel isn't that it offers too much, it's that it offers too little. The lie of the prosperity gospel is that you must do more and that you need more. But the truth of the eternal gospel is that Jesus has paid it all and all you need is him. Do you have him? Do you? If you don't, I would like to offer an invitation today during a money sermon to accept Jesus <laughs> and what only he can give. Accept your inheritance. I'm telling you, I believe it from perhaps the first time in the history of Christian sermons, someone, someone's going to give Jesus a shot after a money sermon. And you should because you have the immeasurable riches of Christ available to you. So step into true eternal prosperity as we reflect on Jesus for taking communion. Would you put 2 Corinthians 8, 9 back up there again? Take the emblems out. Reflect on this verse for just a moment, and then Terrence is going to lead us in communion.